But um, God is good, amen? doesn't matter if we're up or down, if we are feeling good, feeling bad, whether we're healthy, whether we're sick, whether things are going great, things are going bad, He remains the same, amen? His Word tells us that He does not change, and that is a good thing. Praise the Lord. Well, I'm looking forward to this morning. Are you? I am. Praise the Lord. And um, uh, who enjoyed the series that we finished up with last week on being a disciple-making church? I enjoyed that. I really enjoyed teaching that, and I really enjoyed learning and, um, and growing as well. And, and really, I mean, that's what walking with God is about, right? We should always be growing. We should always be learning. And today we're going to start on a new series. Um, as most of you know, next week, of course, we have Turning Point. So we won't have any church service here um, next weekend. Everything's going to be down in Townsville. So make plans to be there, drive, fly, take a fast camel, whatever you need to do. Get yourself down to Townsville because you don't want to miss out on Turning Point this year. Amen. It's going to be great. I'm driving down early Friday morning and I'm picking up Brother Clendence at the airport around lunchtime. And then service starts on Friday night at 7 p.m., I believe it is. But I recommend you come early if you want to get your choice of good seats. Amen. Praise the Lord. So with all that being said, we're going to start a new topic today. But I understand that, uh, you know, next week we won't be doing life class because we'll be at Turning Point. So we'll pick it up again in the week after that. But the good thing about that is that it means you've got an extra week to do the homework I'm going to give you at the end of today. Everyone say homework. Yeah, that's it. You didn't quite get the, the attitude there. Homework. You know, your teacher used to give you homework at school. And homework, really? Praise the Lord. Now, I am very organized today, which uh, doesn't always happen. But God is good. So I've got some handouts here, which I would like some help. Brother Sam, do you want to come help me? Brother Josias, do you want to come help me as well? I'll give half to you and half to you. And you just hand one out to all the adults. People like Jonathan don't need one. Everyone in youth can take one. Amen. And my aim for this series of lessons, which we have entitled Contagious Christianity, my aim is to have a handout each week for everybody. Praise the Lord. So everyone say Contagious Christianity. Contagious Christianity. Now, what does the word contagious mean? If you look it up in the dictionary, it is something that can spread and something that affects others. Amen. Now, we typically think of something contagious as in someone is sick and they're contagious. Amen. Thank you. I know that at the place that I work at Fuji Xerox this last week, um, someone had come into our office with the flu and promptly gave it to everybody else in the office, with the exception of, I think, me and maybe two other people. And so most of our service team was off sick. Some of our staff was still at work, but looked like they had one foot in the grave. Everyone was very, very ill because somebody with a contagious disease had come to our office. Amen. There's other things that are contagious when you think about sickness. If you think about Bible times, um, the one that comes, of course, to mind first is leprosy. 
In the Bible, we read about in the Old Testament how there was particular laws of isolation to keep people apart who had leprosy because they didn't want a contagious disease to spread. Amen. Everyone say contagious. But there are other things that are contagious. I'm sure that if you stop and think about some of these things, you'll realize, yeah, they're contagious. Have you ever been in a room where someone has yawned and all of a sudden everyone else starts yawning as well? Yawning seems to be contagious. I don't know why that is. I don't think science has ever really answered that question. But when I'm driving and Sister Janie starts to yawn next to me, it's not long that I'm starting to yawn as well. Amen. So yawning is, is contagious. You know what else is contagious? A smile is contagious. Try it. If you don't believe me, try this. When you're walking downtown, you will notice that most people, most people, not everybody, most people seem to walk around in life looking something like this. But I promise you, if you catch their eye and you look at them and you smile. See, he smiled. Did you see that? He almost couldn't help him. He's like, pastor's smiling at me. I've got to smile. It's contagious. You try it this week. That's one part of your homework. This week, when you're walking down the street, you see someone coming towards you and they're frowning. Look them in the eye. When you catch their attention, smile. You watch. It's contagious. They all smile. You know what else is contagious? A laugh. A good laugh is contagious. I tell you, you know, there's, have you ever had one of those jokes that are so funny? You start to laugh and you laugh so hard you can't stop. And long after the joke ceases to be funny, you're still laughing. And the people around you are laughing because they're laughing at you laughing and you're just having this big old belly laugh, right? It's contagious. Sometimes I see Jonathan, hear him in his room and he just begins to laugh. And it just makes me want to laugh with him. It's, it's contagious. Something else is contagious, a fire. A fire is contagious, isn't it? If a fire catches light in an area that is dry, eventually a bushfire can form because it's contagious. A fire doesn't just stay in one spot, but it catches and it spreads and it moves around and it consumes everything in its path. Contagious. Everyone say contagious. And perhaps you've heard that expression that there are things that are best caught and not taught. Right? Or maybe you've heard it like this, your actions speak louder than your words. Right? Sometimes the things that we see our kids doing, we tell them not to do it, but we're doing it ourselves because our actions can be contagious. Amen. So over the next few weeks, we are going to be talking about contagious Christianity because I believe that if we can live our lives for Jesus in such a way that people look at that and they spend time with us, it will become contagious. They will catch things from us. They will see things in our behavior and our actions and our attitude and our mindset and, and our approach to life, and it will catch. They will see something. I go, I want to be like that. Everyone say contagious. So I've given you a handout today, and at the end of this, I've got some homework for you. Amen. But we're going we're gonna to dig into this contagious Christianity. Now, has anyone heard of the anthropic principle? Put your hands up if you've heard of the anthropic principle. That's good, because I hadn't heard of it either, and I thought I was quite stupid. 
I hadn't heard of it either until I started studying for this. But the anthropic principle says that in the universe we exist, it is a small um, window of opportunity, I guess, for lack of a better word, that says life can exist. Now, we exist in a small sliver of life where it is safe for us to live. Or in other words, in other words, if we were to raise or lower the universe's rate of expansion by even one part in a million, tiny little fraction, life couldn't exist. Just wouldn't exist. If the average distance between the stars were any greater, planets like Earth would not be able to exist. If the planetary orbits, if the distances were smaller, the orbits that are necessary for life to be sustained couldn't be secured. If the ratio of carbon to oxygen had been slightly different than what it is, none of us would be here to breathe the air. If you were to change the tilt of the Earth's axes, because those of you who are science nerds know that the Earth is kind of tilted on a, a slight angle, and if you were to change it just slightly in one direction, we would all burn up. If you were to change it slightly in the other direction, we would all freeze, right? If the earth had been a bit closer or a bit further from the sun, either direction, or maybe just a little bit bigger, the earth, or just a little bit smaller, then the temperature variations would be completely fatal to our life. We could not exist. So all of that points us to the fact, hear me now, that somebody went to a great deal of effort to make sure that things on planet earth are just right for us. Now we know that's God. Amen. But the coincidences are too great to just assume that oh, it's just some chance. No, no, no. It is set up perfectly. Somebody had great care and great attention to detail. And what that means is that science, as it were, points to the fact that God must really care about us. Aren't you glad God cares about you? Amen. So that's science. Now let's think about business. In his book, Thriving on Chaos, Tom Peters talks about a, a customer revolution. And it's this idea that as a business, we need to review every action that we take through the eyes of the customer. How does the customer feel about this? How does the customer think about this? What does the customer feel about that? What does the customer think about this? Every action has to be viewed through the eyes of the customer. Amen. In his book, The One Minute Manager, Ken Blanchard, now stick with me, I've got a point here. He talks about the upside-down pyramid, right? Now, we've often seen a corporate structure, right? You know, you've got the boss at the top, yeah? And then under the boss, you've got like manager, manager, manager. And then under him, you've got like frontline manager, frontline manager, frontline manager, frontline manager. And then under him, you've got all the staff. And then right at the very bottom, you've got all your customers, Right. In this book, he says that actually we should flip that. So what we have is that the customers are on top. 
And they lead down to the staff. And then those staff lead down to the frontline managers. And the frontline managers lead down to the management team. And then right at the bottom, you have the boss. And what he says in this book is that all the values of the business, the strategy of the business, the direction of the business should come from where the customers are wanting the business to go, not where the boss wants the business to go. Because if the customers suddenly change what they want to buy or how they want to buy it, the boss might not be aware. But if the customers are the one that are helping to set the strategy and the vision and the direction of the company, there'll be success. Amen? This is business. Businesses understand that if they are going to be successful for the long haul, they have to pull their attention off of themselves and focus their energies on the only reason that business exists. And that is to serve their customers. Amen. If you don't have customers in business, you're not going to be in business for very long. Is that right? And so businesses in this day and age, and even my business that I work in, right, we are wanting to develop a customer obsession. We're putting the customer first in everything we do. Now, so science teaches us that people matter to God. Modern business teaches us that people matter to them as well. And here's the thing, when you start to think about it, the problems and the solutions of the business world have close cousins within the Christian community. Now, what do I mean by that? We get so easily entangled and ensnared in internal issues, in questions, in personal situations in our church that it's hard to remember sometimes that the reason we exist is not for us. It's for the people out there. Amen? We can worship, and we should. We can live holy, and we should. We can tithe, and we should. We can sing songs to God, and we should. And we should listen to preaching. We should do all of these things. We should meet every week. We should be in a connect group. But the purpose of all of that is so we can reach people out there. And the problem is, is that we get so caught up and so entangled and so bogged down in living our lives for God, we lose focus on who our, if I could use the business word, our customers are. And we realize that you know, we become so focused internally, we lose sight of the fact that those people out there matter to God just as much as we matter to God. Are you with me so far? See, the problem is, is that we quickly forget how much people matter to God and we begin to fall prey to what I would call making armchair assessments of who God has a use for and who He doesn't. And the list almost never includes people who aren't a part of our church. Right? The thing is, is that we look at people out there and we think, well, sheesh, there's no way God would ever use them. Man, if they were to come to church, they'd just be a pew warmer. There's nowhere we could put them to work. They don't have any talents for God's kingdom. This happens because we stop caring about people out there. And we begin caring more about ourselves in here. Amen. 
And this is dangerous. Because if we slip into that attitude of, well, people out there don't matter anymore, then all of a sudden, the church begins to lose focus on its mission. We become internally focused. And it's dangerous because God cares deeply about the people out there. And when we become internally focused, we lose sight of that. And we no longer have that burning desire in our heart that says, we've got to find someone to share the gospel. We've got to find someone to invite them to church. We've got to build a relationship with someone so we can get to know them. We lose it. Because they're not important to us anymore. Now this is not something that's just common to our day and age. This is an age old issue. The same attitude surfaced in various places throughout the Bible as well. As a matter of fact, one day Jesus was teaching. And the religious leaders began complaining about him. Because he was hanging out with, shall we say, the undesirables. He was hanging out with the publicans, the sinners, the tax collectors, the people who society didn't like, frowned upon. But not just society, the religious elite, the church of the day, if I could put it that way, frowned on those. Well, they're, not, they're not good enough to be in church with us. We are very holy. We are very righteous. Nobody can come in here with us. Amen. And so Jesus obviously completely disagreed with that. And in Luke chapter 15, he told a series of three parables. And it's the only time that Jesus told three parables in a row. They're all related to one another. The first one, he told the parable about the shepherd with the lost sheep. This is in Luke 15. He told the parable about a woman with the lost coin. And he told the parable of a father who had a lost son. Now, there's a few essential elements that are common across all three. The first one is that something of great value, everyone say value. Something of great value winds up missing. A sheep, coin, and a son. That which is missing is important enough to warrant an all-out search. Certainly in the case of the sheep, the shepherd left the sheep that were in the sheepfold and went out to find the one that was lost. The woman who had lost the coin, little lamp, got down on her hands and knees and swept out the house and brushed underneath the bed and underneath the cabinet looking for that lost coin. While the father didn't go after the son, he certainly every day watched for his son to come. He was searching the road for his son, waiting for that day when he was going to come home. In all three cases, the retrieval of that lost object, the sheep, the coin, the sun, results in great celebration. And the reason for that is because there is meaning and a relationship between that which was lost and that which found that which was lost. Right? In each case, the shepherd put great value on that sheep. He loved that sheep. The woman, there was a story behind those coins. She wanted to find it. She loved it. She wanted to find it and put it back together. Some people say it could have been something like a part of a bridal outfit or something from when she was married. There's a lot of speculation about what it was. 
But regardless, there was great celebration when she found it. The lost son, of course, had a relationship with the father that was never lost, even though that son had gone far away. The rejoicing happened because there was a relationship there and because there was meaning there. In Luke 15 and verse 10, the Bible says that in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Why? Because a relationship has been restored. That's why there's rejoicing in heaven. See, mankind, everybody, not just people here, but everybody out there was built, created, designed to have a relationship with God. And God's waiting for it. And when it happens, that's why He rejoices, because that relationship that has been broken by sin becomes restored again. Amen. And so what that means for us is that you will never lock eyes with another human being that's not valuable to God. We make judgments, don't we? I do. We all do. It's, it's natural. It's, it's just our human nature. We look at someone on the side of the street passed out because of drugs or alcohol. And how often do we judge them? And we lock eyes with them and they slur some obscenity at us. And we're just like, but that person whose eyes you've just looked into, Jesus loves them. He loves them just as much as he loves you with all your good righteousness and holiness and living for God. We look at that businessman who's driving around in a really expensive car who's so busy he barely has time for his family. And we sit there and think, well, I wouldn't be like that. I'd use my money for something good. We judge them. And yet God loves him with all of his flaws, just as much as he loves you and just as much as he loves me. You will never lock eyes with another human being that God does not love, that God does not treat as priceless, That God does not hold in esteem. God loves the world. The Bible tells us that. Amen. And so what that means for us is this. If God wants to have a relationship with everybody, because he does. The Bible says he's not willing that any should perish. That means as a church, as the body of Christ, as a body of believers who are executing Christ's mission on earth... We need to try and create relationships with people. Amen. And we call this relational evangelism. Everyone say relational evangelism. Now, that word evangelism. Some people, that strikes fear into their hearts. I know it did mine for a long time. Evangelism. Because for some reason, when we think of the word evangelism, we think of, you know, going down to the esplanade and stopping some random person in the middle of their exercise and go, right, I'm going to give you a Bible study. Let me tell you about Jesus and this is what he did for you. And the person's like, I just want to run. I don't even know you. Right. And so we have often these kind of negative stereotypes about what evangelism is, obnoxious, pushy. Insensitive, 
not concerned about other people, just trying to get our message out there. There's also, of course, some, some positive stereotypes about evangelism, people who are outgoing, bold. You know, can I just be honest with you for a second? I would love to have the boldness to get up at the esplanade and stand on the corner of one of those benches and just start preaching. But to be honest, that freaks me out. That's not me. Now, there are other people in our church who would gladly jump up and preach the gospel. You could throw rotten tomatoes at them. You could scream at them. You could just get up and preach because they're just, they're outgoing. I'm just not that outgoing. Amen? Just not that outgoing. Right? Extroverted. So what we need to do when we consider what relational evangelism is, is that we need to get past our negative stereotypes of evangelism. Because these things prevent us from being contagious Christians. But, hear me now, we also need to get past our positive stereotypes of evangelism. Because there are many, many people who would not relate to that kind of person. That extroverted, bold, outgoing kind of person. Some people relate well to that. But not everybody. Not everybody. The good news for us is that it means we don't have to be something odd. Everyone say odd. We don't have to be something odd that we do not want to be. Right? I am a pastor. I am a preacher. I'm also an excellent relationship builder. I am the world's lousiest pilot. True story. You put me behind the controls of a 737, I promise you I will crash it in about two minutes. I'm not a pilot. I haven't been trained to be a pilot. It's not in me, right? And when we think about evangelism, it's the same thing. I mean, we might be thinking, man, I'm just, I don't have, I'm not the kind of person that has to get up and get up in front of a whole bunch of strangers and preach the gospel. It's okay. You don't have to be. To do relational evangelism, you don't have to be bold. You don't have to be extroverted. You don't have to be outgoing. Amen. So the good thing is, is we don't have to be something odd that we do not want to be. Nor do we have to be something great that we may never be. But when you think about relational evangelism, the good thing about it is that we just have to be ourselves. Everyone say ourselves. Ourselves. You don't have to change your personality. You don't have to change your approach. You don't have to change who you are. You just have to be yourself, which means if you're a quiet person, you can keep being a quiet person and you can still engage in relational evangelism. If you're a bold, outgoing person and you want to stand up at the esplanade and preach, good for you. You can do that too. Amen. We just have to be ourselves. So what does relational evangelism look like? In your handouts now, you'll see on your page there, you've got some blanks. I encourage you to listen as we go through this. The first thing that relational evangelism looks like is that it is authentic. Everyone say authentic. In his book, Lifestyle Evangelism, Joe Altrich puts it like this. Christians are to be, everyone say be. Christians are to be the good news before they share the good news. 
Have you ever, have you ever met those Christians? Don't put your hand up if you're one of them. Have you ever met some of those Christians who come to church on a Sunday morning or go to work on a Monday morning and they just look like their cat died and they stepped on their goldfish who had jumped out of the tank on the morning and uh, as they walked out, they hit their head on the top of the door and then they jammed their finger in the car door when they got to work. You ever met Christians who just look perpetually like that? <laughs> right? Some people who say, I'm a Christian, they just don't got no joy. It's gone. Their life is like a soap opera. <laughs> you ever met Christians like that? Am I the only one who's met Christians like that? Amen. We have to be the good news. We have to show that Jesus is living in our life. That means it's authentic, right? It's real. We're not just saying one thing, but doing another, but we actually allow the good news of the Bible to guide our lives, to guide our actions, to guide our thoughts, to guide how we interact with one another. Amen. Authentic. Everyone say authentic. Another thing. That relational evangelism looks like is it looks natural. Everyone say natural. Relational evangelism reflects our own personality. You just have to act yourself. You just have to act normal. You don't have to talk in a weird voice. You know, I've heard people who share the gospel, they feel like they've got to use the King James English when they're doing it. You know, you just use your words. Just speak normal, talk normal. Just be yourself. Relational evangelism. You have to be natural. The third thing that relational evangelism looks like is that it is personal. Everyone say personal. Okay, quick show of hands here. Who has Facebook? Okay. How many times have you been watching a video on Facebook and you see that dreaded message? In three seconds, an ad will start. And then the advertisement comes on. Does anyone else besides me, as soon as you get to the advertisement, just keep scrolling? I'm just going to watch it till you get to the, oh, the advert, I'm done. You lost me at the advertisement. Right? Do you know why that is? It's because humanity, mankind, this world is sick of mass market approaches, right? We want it to be personal. We want someone to relate specifically to us, to talk to what we're feeling and what's going on in our life. And that's why so much stuff about Facebook and uh, Siri and all that freaks people out these days because, you know, I mean, I'll talk, I'll talk with I'll talk with Janie at home about, hey, you know, we should go to England one day. I'll get on Facebook like two hours later and there's adverts for flights to England. I'm like, someone's listening to me. And Facebook puts ads up just about what I'm listening. It's like, Ugh. right? Because we want things to be personal and technology is trying to make things more personal. But there is nothing more personal than just talking with a friend. Amen? You know, if... If you do a, and we do it, we do it at our work, you know, we do marketing, we do social media, all that kind of stuff. But the quickest way that we close a deal is when 
client A, who is already a customer, is very, very good friends with client B, who's not a customer, but looking, and client A says to client B, you know, you need to talk to Jason. He's just a great guy. We're good friends. And because they're good friends, he's going to call me because his friend recommended me, right? Personal. What's the first one? What does relationship, relational evangelism look like? It is authentic. It is natural. It is. And the third one is that it's verbal. Romans chapter 10 and verse 14 says, And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without somebody preaching to them? Just as words without actions are empty, so are actions without words. We have to live and we have to explain the gospel. Amen? And I think over the coming weeks we'll dig more into that a little bit more. Evangelism is process-orientated, relational evangelism. And this is something that we're working on as a church. And this is why this is a good segue from what we talked about. You know, event-orientated evangelism often has to rush and push people. Right? We put on a special service at Easter, for example, and everybody invites all their friends, but the problem is, is that we don't get to build a relationship with everybody. Whereas if one visitor comes in, we can build a relationship with them and get to know them, amen? And we, we have steps that we take them through, if depending on where they are in their walk with God. You know, we'll go, okay, we'll sit down, we're going to teach you this Bible study, then we're going to put you in this class, and then you're going to learn this, and then we're going to go through this, and then we're going to teach you this, and, and that's discipleship. And that's what we've been talking about for the last six weeks. The next thing that relational evangelism is, is that it is team-orientated. Everyone say team. There is no I in team. A person who's coming to Christ is like a chain with many links. And so we don't have to feel that individually we carry the full burden of evangelism. It is not just my job to reach our city. The good news is, is that it's not just your job to reach the city either. It's all of our jobs. We work together. We are a team, amen? And so that means we need to intentionally become partners with other Christians, working together to bring them into the body of Christ, to lead people to Christ, amen? And the last thing before we talk about homework, that relational evangelism is, is that it is putting others first. Putting others first. That means we defer to their interests. We defer to their hobbies. We defer to their schedules and their openness. If we're sharing the gospel and we feel like someone's shutting down and they don't want to talk about it, we back off. We defer to their interests. If someone wants to sit down, let me, let me, let me think of something really obscure. Brother Kenneth, how much do you like the Olympic game of curling? Never even heard of it, right? I was trying to pick something really obscure, the hoping that you didn't hear about it before, right? But you know what? Someone who is engaged in relational evangelism, if someone comes to you, church member, hear me now, if someone comes to you and says, Oh, wow, did you see the curling tryouts last week? 
Your job is not to go, nah, that seems pretty boring. What's the weather like at your place today? No, 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 no. You defer your interest to that as you go, really? Wow, I don't know that much about curling. Tell me what's involved. And they are going to tell you every little intricate detail of curling. Well, you know, they've got this little thing. I don't even know what it's called. And they slide it down the ice and then two people skate in front of it and they brush the ice in front of it and they get to stop it on this target. And Wow. You might be sitting there thinking, this is pretty boring. <laughs> I am not interested in curling. But your job is to be interested because they're interested. And that's how you build a relationship with someone, right? You're deferring your interests, your hobbies. You listen to their opinions before giving yours. You take an interest in their background, in their stories, in their questions, in their doubts, in their frustrations. You ask them about themselves, what they like, what they dislike, what they believe, what they don't believe, what they value, what they do not value. You really listen to them. That's how you build a relationship. Because when you put them first, you earn the right to then talk about your own interests, which have then, of course, would be church and living for God. Amen. Now, why is this important? You might be sitting here thinking, wow, that sounds really manipulative, Pastor. No, it's not. Here's the thing. This world is built on me, 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 me. Put me first. Look after me, my interest. And people out there are hungry for someone who just cares about them. And when they come across a Christian who is genuinely interested in their life, it's refreshing. Wow, someone actually cares about me. Someone's interested in my opinion, in my feelings, in what's going on. It's refreshing. People out there are hungry to be in a relationship with someone who really cares about them. Amen? Praise the Lord. Now, relational evangelism. What does it look like? What's the first one? Right. What's the second one? Third one. Fourth one. Fifth one. Process orientated. If you missed that one, it's a hyphenated word. Process orientated. What's the sixth one? Team orientated. And the last one is putting others first. Praise the Lord. Now, everyone say homework. On the back of your handout. Is it on the back? No, it's on the inside. On the inside of your handout, you have an impact list. Here's what I want you to do over the next two weeks. Because remember, next week we're at turning point. I want you to carefully consider the people in your life to whom you could give concentrated effort in the attempt to bring them to the next step in the evangelism process. That means build a relationship with them. Get to know them better. I want you to fill those names out on that list. And then on the last page, you'll see some prayer points that I want you to begin to pray about. Pray for them. Ask God to pull them towards himself, etc., etc. Pray for you. Ask God to make you authentic and honest as you deal with life's ups and downs. Amen. So that's part of your homework. I've got more homework. I think I've got enough sheets here. 
We are not all gung-ho go-getters. True story. Some of us like standing up in front of other people and talking. Others of us are petrified about holding a microphone even. Amen. And so we all have different personalities and different um, ways that we relate to people. And so what we've got here is we've got what's called an evangelism style questionnaire. There's a series of questions on there. And all you have to do is think about yourself and go very much, somewhat, very little, or not at all. And write the number down there. Then add it all up down the bottom. And it will show you what kind of personality that you have. And then on the back page, there's some information about what kind of personality you have. So if I can get it, um, Brother Sam and Josiah to come help me again. Thanks, guys. Hand one of these out. There should be enough for every adult and youth member. That's the other part of your homework. Fill that out. Get an idea about what kind of personality you have. I know what my personality is like. Right? I've spent quite a lot of time studying my personality. I do it for my job. Right? But write it down. Score yourself down. There's no right or wrong answer. Okay? Just score, your, score it down as you go and then add it all up. If you've got any questions, come and see me about it. Praise the Lord. Do you love Jesus this morning? We are learning to be contagious Christians. Everyone say contagious. Praise the Lord. Did anyone else not get one? Thank you. I've got a couple of sheets left. Praise the Lord. All right. Why don't we all stand this morning?